Psalm 118. It says, Swing wide, you heavenly gates. The people of the Lord may enter in and bring him praises. So as we sing that, that's what we're doing. Swing wide the gates of heaven. Swing wide, all you heavens. Let the praise go up as the walls come down. All creation, everything with breath, repeat the sound. And all his children. Your heart's good grace from God. His name is Jesus. So sing it again. Swing wide. Here we go. Swing wide. No, you have Let the praise go up as the walls come down. No creation. And everything with breath repeats the sound. No, it's children. Clean hands, pure hearts, good grace, good God.
times in our corporate gathering, we can just sing with everything we've got, Lord, and praise and honor and adoration to our King, to our Savior, our Redeemer. Thank you so much, Lord. God, we just invite your presence. I think we've already done that, Lord, but we will continue to invite your presence. We need your presence, Lord, in our corporate gatherings, Lord, but we need your presence in our daily uh, walk and uh, just in everything that we experience and encounter and go through in life, Lord God. So fill us with your presence, your spirit to overflowing, God, that we might live out of that reality, Lord God. So for those who are just kind of worn out today, Lord, I pray blessings and grace, Lord God, a filling in Jesus' name. For those who are discouraged, God, we just ask, God, that you would encourage them in the spirit, in the natural, in every way possible, Lord, build them up in their most holy faith in Jesus' name. Lord God, for those who need a physical touch of healing, we just pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would work a miracle in the lives of your saints here, gathered all over. And for anybody tuned in, Lord God, we pray healing power and healing grace upon their lives as well. We're thankful, Lord God, for what you're doing in our lives. We're thankful that Ken's back and healed up and doing better, Lord God. We just pray, God, for all of those he represents. So many have gone through the fire and gone through sickness and all kinds of stuff, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that uh, you would... Uh, uh, just continue to work and minister and just do wonderful and profound things. God, we love you. We thank you for what you will do as you teach us through your scripture today. Anoint me, I pray. Speak through me, I pray. I don't want to do it without you, Lord. So uh, anoint and speak through me and then uh, prepare our hearts and our ears, Lord God, to receive your message. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, turn around. Say hello to someone that you never have met before. <laughs> I'm like, ta-da!
water. Bring him on. Had to get some water and a uh, something to help my throat because I was singing. <laughs> sing first service, preach first service, sing second service, try to preach second service. <laughs> Welcome. We're in Hebrews chapter nine, and um, we're going to get through about halfway through it. I was thinking about my sermon yesterday as I was spraying Roundup, this weed killer. We, I, I sprayed up. I sprayed like. 12 gallons of, yeah, maybe that's the deal. I should have wore a mask or something, but yeah, maybe that's the deal. Got to get, on, get in on that class action lawsuit, huh? That's going on. Anyway, never mind. Another story. <laughs> but um, I was spraying that thing, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to come out and do this in about two more months. Because it's like, as soon as I spray it, it kills it, it rains, it sun comes out, and I got to, it shines, and everything just grows right back. I thought, I'm, I'm glad God's grace isn't like that. I'm so grateful for the atonement. Once for all time, Christ died for us, entered that holy of holy places, offered himself as our atonement, our forever sacrifice, and died. And, and, and we, don't, we don't have to go through all of that again. We're saved by grace through faith. Once and for all time, God made atonement for us. And uh, we're going to be talking about that today, God's ability through Christ to cleanse our sins, but also to cleanse our conscience. Because sometimes we, we realize that God on some level has cleansed our sins, but it hasn't allowed us to walk with a clear conscience. And uh, so it's, it's like... Um, Condemnation, heaviness, guilt, we're carrying around things that God never intended for us to carry. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But some of us feel guilty about everything. We recount past mistakes, reliving past conversations, rehashing past relationships, reviving past decisions, and we kind of rehearse over and over again our past. And maybe, maybe that past was yesterday, maybe that past was 10 years ago or 50 years ago, but we're constantly rehashing the past, right? Christ has the power to cleanse us from our sins and this conscience that is constantly getting worn out by past, by thinking about the past, by regretting the past, by wishing we could go back and change the past. And what I've realized, because I, I, I've been there and there's still some things I wish I could go back and change, but what I've realized is that God uses all of those past experiences, all of that past brokenness, all of those past mistakes, he uses it in such a beautiful way to equip us for the incredible work that he's got for us today. So now, because of those mistakes and all of those imperfections, we have greater capacity to empathize with people, to feel the pain of others and what they're going through, to identify with people, and to, and to pray with real sincerity for those who are going through hard stuff. I tell you what, after COVID, I prayed on a different level for people going through it because I had empathy. I was like, holy cow, I, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, right? 
those experiences in life, relational, spiritual, whatever they may be, God is in his wonderful and supernatural way. He is putting all of those ingredients together with his grace, his love, and that transformational work that he accomplishes in us. And then he prepares us through all of those ingredients to go do the wonderful things that God has called us to do. So sometimes we think our past failures disqualify us. I think in so many ways they qualify us. They have prepared us. They have prepared us for what God wants to do in us and with us and through us. I felt called to the ministry when I was about 17, and I thought for sure God was just going to usher me right in and blah, blah, blah. But he had a whole different path for my life, put me into the business world for about 10 years before going into vocational ministry. And man, I learned so much through those experiences in sales and marketing and just doing business in the world. And, and those things have helped me. They've, they've, I said this recently, as much as Bible college and seminary has helped me, I would say that my business experience in the, in the marketplace has helped me. And all of the things that God taught me about people, about working with people, about being reliable. So whatever God's got you going through right now or whatever you're experiencing, just trust that what the enemy, if it's bad stuff, it's trust that if it's what the enemy is used for evil, God will use it for good. If it's just experiential stuff and you're, God is using all of those things to equip you for your incredible work. And through all of that, he's wanting to use you anyway, no matter what your station in life is. So quit recounting past mistakes with such regret. Quit reliving past conversations and past relationships. And quit reviving past decisions and just trust the Lord moving forward in Jesus' name. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. And Hebrews chapter 9 talks about our conscience. And hopefully we fix the points. Um, we had the word conscious <laughs> instead of the word conscience. <laughs> there's a difference. I don't know if you know that, but there's a difference. So somebody pointed that out, thankfully. So hopefully we got the points fixed, but uh, we're talking about conscience and not conscious today. So as we wrapped up Hebrews 8 last week, I love what Hebrews 8.13 says. It says this, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. <laughs> it's a beautiful statement. The old covenant did not have the power to do what the new covenant has the power to do. God, through this second covenant, this new covenant that's been designed by Christ and upheld by Christ, has the power to transform our lives. The new covenant in Christ has the power to cleanse people of their sins and therefore cleanse our conscience so that we no longer carry the burden of our sin. The first covenant was a shadow of things to come. The first covenant points to our desperate need for God, for his grace. It points out the reality of our sin. That's why the, the law was given, so that we would recognize our desperate need for his grace. It wasn't given so that we'd somehow measure up. It was given so that we would realize, holy cow, I can never measure up, and I need God's grace. So the first covenant was a shadow of things to come. The earthly tabernacle was a shadow of things to come. I just ask you, please don't get left in the shadow. Let's move into the marvelous light of our glorious God and, and move in our understanding and grow in our our understanding of his incredible grace. 
Let's examine the first covenant in light of the second covenant. Hebrews 9.1 talks about the first covenant, and it, this is kind of the theme, the, the priesthood of Christ. It, it'll be the theme kind of through about halfway through chapter 10, so it's a bit redundant maybe, but I found Whenever there's redundancy in scripture, it's meant to enhance and highlight and remind us because, I don't know about you, but I need redundancy. I can read the same passage over and over again and I'm like, oh, that's right. I've read that a thousand times, but I need a thousand and one, right? To really get it, to really have it sink in. Hebrews 9.1 says, the first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms, and so now we're gonna describe the earthly tabernacle. It was basically a tent, and many say it was just kind of like the tents that the Israelites would carry and that they would live in, but these tents were, this tent was designed to, as a place of worship and a place of offering sacrifice. So there are two rooms in this tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. And this room was called the holy place. So this is where the priests would go in and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And then there was a curtain behind this first room uh, that took, was you, as you go through that first curtain, you go into the second room. And it says here there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll unpack the Ark here in just a moment. The Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So again, there's three things inside the Ark of the Covenant. We're gonna unpack those three things because they help us understand the purpose of the Old Covenant, the purpose of the Old Testament. Um, they, they help us to understand God's heart in the Old Covenant hoping to point us to the new. So everything in the ark pointed to Israel's desperate need for God's grace. The manna, manna, by the way, means what is it? <laughs> so when the people of Israel woke up the first day that manna settled on the ground, there was all of this like dew and um, it was sparkling and the people were like, what is it? <laughs> so that's what the manna is. And so the people would go out and they picked it up and they gathered under the instruction from the Lord, gather, I think it was two quarts per person per day, and don't gather any more. Well, like most of us might be thinking, why not, if two quarts is enough, why not get three quarts? We got a little extra for midnight snack or in the morning or whatever, right? But what happened is whatever they gathered over what was instructed turned into maggots and had a, a wretched smell. And really, it's a picture of what our disobedience looks like and our faithlessness looks like before God. They gathered extra because they were afraid they wouldn't have any for the next day. So God spoke to them about it. The provision, uh, the manna represented the provision of the Lord and a reminder, it was also a reminder of Israel's fearlessness and unbelief. And so they've got the manna in there to remind the people through the generations of Israel's disbelief and fearfulness, but also the Lord's provision. Exodus 16 says that the manna was like coriander, white coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers, Exodus 16, 33. Sounds like good stuff, you know? Kind of make a little breakfast, and we can make 
manna bread, manna cotty, <laughs> manna, whatever you want. I know, I know, it's Keith Green. Some are old enough in the room to know my reference, though. <laughs> the people of Israel complained to God out of fear that he had forgotten about them, and, and uh, that's what the manna represented. Aaron's staff represent, it represented the rebellion of God's people and the judgment of God. You can read about that story in Numbers 16 and 17. Go back and reread Numbers 16 and 17 because it talks about God's judgment against those who rebelled against him. It says the earth opened up and swallowed the people and closed back up and they were just gone. Judgment. Aaron's staff represented the rebellion of God's people and the judgment of God. Aaron's staff sprouted. This is interesting. So imagine I've got a staff in my office that somebody made for me. It's this tall eucalyptus staff, and it's dead, right? Nobody expects it to do anything but stand in the corner, and I'll take it on a walks with me from time to time. But Aaron's staff, because God was speaking his truth and ministering his Revelation, his, his staff sprouted and budded and blossomed and produced ripe almonds. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? You see that number 17, 8. So Aaron's staff represented the rebellion of God's people and the judgment of God. The stone tablets represented God's law and Israel's inability to keep the law. The stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant were written with the very finger of God. We know that from Exodus 31.8 and a few other verses. So we look at the contents of the Ark of the Covenant and everything in the, within this, this box represented Israel's and humanity's desperate need for the grace of God. There are things in our lives today that remind us of our desperate need for God's grace. My wife will often tell me, you desperately need the grace of God. And I say, I know. You've been telling me. No, she never says that, but I know what she's thinking. But mistakes and sins. No, she's actually never said that before. <laughs> to be clear, sorry. <laughs> mistakes and sins from our past and our present remind us of our need for God's grace. So the new covenant is God's response to that desperate need. The old covenant was good in that it was a shadow of things to come, but it was, it was incomplete. The old covenant teaches us about sin and our need for God's grace. And the old covenant points us, the Old Testament points us to a promised new covenant who would come through, that would come through Christ Jesus the Lord. Hebrews 8 references this passage in Jeremiah 31 that I'm going to read, so it will sound familiar to you because we just went through it a couple weeks ago. It says this in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. So this is six, 700 years before the time of Christ. The Jeremiah is writing this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the new covenant. 
This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And listen to this, I love this last part. And I will forgive their wickedness, and will never again remember their sins. That's the promise of God that was fulfilled in Christ. I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. So God has the capacity and the grace to forgive our sins and to cleanse our conscience. They should go hand in hand, but sometimes we get hung up and we feel guilty about stuff that we've already confessed, that God has already forgiven, and we're just thinking about it and rehashing it, and the enemy is using it to distract us and to wear us out and to wear us down and discourage our progress, our forward progress as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the ark, representing the old covenant, is filled with reminders of Israel's failures, reminders of humanity's failures. The cross, representing the new covenant, is a wonderful reminder of God's grace, his love, and his forgiveness. The ark's cover, there was a cover over the ark, and it was called the place of atonement or the mercy seat. And it's a picture of what is needed to cover or atone for the sins represented inside the ark. So inside the ark is reminders of our sin, Israel's sin. The ark, the ark's cover, the mercy seat, is a picture of the atonement that is needed. In other words, as one writer puts it, the ark, by its contents, declared the divine holiness by which all stand condemned, and by its form, especially the atonement cover, declared the divine redeeming mercy through the shed Blood, old covenant, shed blood of animals, new covenant, once for all time, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is our mediator, the one who is forever interceding for us, the one who loves us unconditionally. Above the ark, above the ark where the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now, the author says. I think he kind of already did, but maybe there's more. Anyway, the ark is a picture. It's an illustration declaring for humanity God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and God's plan to redeem humanity through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. The Old Testament speaks clearly about our need for God's grace. The Old Testament also tells, us, tells God's people of God's answer to our need in the person and finished work of Jesus the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, we have roughly 300 prophecies speaking about the coming Messiah. Hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus was born and Jesus was on the scene, prophets, God spoke to prophets, and they spoke about the coming Messiah. So they knew their desperate need for God's grace, and they were all, all of Israel and Judah were waiting for their Messiah. Why? Because they had read the prophets. They understood God's plan, and they had been waiting. So it's perplexing to realize that when Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's fulfilling the prophecies that the people of Israel and Judah still mostly refused to believe. Things changed as time went on, and people in Israel, 
are still believing to this day, putting their faith in the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In an article written by Mary Fairchild, she writes, the book of the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament contain many passages about the Messiah, all prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled. For instance, the crucifixion of Jesus was foretold in Psalm 22, 1, 6 through 18, approximately 1,000 years before Christ was born, long before this method of execution was even practiced. So uh, this method of per- uh, execution through crucifixion was not, not even practiced when this was written. After Christ's resurrection, preachers of the New Testament church began to declare officially that Jesus was the Messiah by divine appointment. We see that in Paul's writings in Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is pointing back to the prophetic words that were uttered in the Old Testament, pointing to what Jesus accomplished in his earthly life and ministry. So again, some Bible scholars suggest that there are more than 300 Old Testament prophetic scriptures completed in the life of Jesus Christ, such as his birthplace, prophecies about his birthplace, his lineage, method of execution. These things were all beyond Christ's control and could not have been accidentally or deliberately fulfilled. This is God's divine plan unfolding in the universe on a macro scale. If God can pull all of that together on a macro scale, we can trust him on a micro scale with our lives. We need to understand that God has a plan that is unfolding. We can trust his plan to bring it to fruition. He is completely capable, completely desiring to bring those plans to fruition in our lives. Let's talk about statistical probability or improbability concerning the fulfillment of these prophecies that were spoken in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The chance of just eight, so there's about 300, the chance of just eight prophecies being fulfilled, this is the kind of the math. It's one in the 10th, one in 10 in the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. So this is kind of what that looks like. You ever been to Texas? So I was driving back from Louisiana years and years ago, and we are driving long, long days. It took us two full days to get through Texas. <laughs> driving all day long. We thought we're never going to make it. <laughs> the other side of Texas, this place is eternal, right? So it's a huge state. So imagine taking silver dollars and covering the whole state of Texas two feet deep. <laughs> two feet deep, that's a lot, of, a lot of silver dollars. Now imagine marking one of those silver dollars and chucking it somewhere in the state of Texas, mixing them all together, And then imagine blindfolding someone 
and telling them they can travel anywhere in the state of Texas, but they have to grab that one silver dollar that has been marked and declare this is the one. One to the 10th, 17th, how am I saying that right, Jim? One in 10 to the 17th power, there we go. One in 10 to the 17th power. That is the probability of eight prophecies coming true. There are 300. This is evidence of the divinity, the messiahship, the reality of who Jesus was and is, that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So the mathematical probability of 300 or 47 or even just eight fulfilled prophecies of Jesus stands as evidence of his Messiahship. Prophecies uh, about him being born of a woman. Uh, Genesis 3.15, that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14, that he would come from the tribe of Judah. We talked about that in our Hebrew study, Genesis 49.10, that his throne would be anointed and eternal. Psalm 45, Daniel chapter 2. There's a bunch here. Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, that he'd be a prophet, that he'd be preceded by Elijah, that he would be declared the son of God, that he'd be called a Nazarene. It goes on and on and on. That Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We studied that as in our study of Hebrews uh, chapter seven. That he would be called king. Psalm two, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 11. That Messiah would be praised by little children, Psalm 8, verse 2. All of these specific things were spoken of the Messiah hundreds and even thousands of years prior to his arrival. That he would resurrect from the dead, Psalm 16 and Psalm 49. That he would be seated at God's right hand. That the Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin that he would return a second time, and on and on and on. These and many other Old Testament verses about Israel's Messiah were fulfilled in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament life of Jesus Christ. Collectively, they form the leading proof of his deity, of Christ's deity. As Jesus went about his ministry, he knew, he knew that he was fulfilling these prophecies, and he pointed especially the religious leaders who understood the prophetic writings, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He pointed them to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the writings of the prophets. And this is what he said in Luke 24, 25 through 27. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said in John 5, 39 through 40, he says, you search the scriptures, speaking to the religious leaders. And when he's talking about scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. 
You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, Jesus said. Yet, you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Some of us have had so much evidence pointing to the reality and the goodness and the sufficiency of Christ, and yet we still refuse to believe. What is it gonna take for us to finally believe? Some of us have believed unto salvation, but a lot of us are struggling to believe that God is good in our day-to-day lives, that God can sufficiently provide for us in our day-to-day lives, that God wants to cleanse our conscience so that we can move forward with peace and power and confidence, not in who we are, but in who Jesus is. When we understand who Jesus is, we can move forward with greater confidence, greater passion, with greater compassion because of what Jesus has revealed to us and has accomplished in our lives. Let's move out of the shadows and believe that God is capable, that he's all-powerful, that he's omnipresent, that he's very good, and his love is unconditional. Let's move forward in our faith as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where in your life do you need to move forward as a as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is your faith life struggling, dry? Where do you need to invite God in so that you might walk with greater enthusiasm, greater confidence, greater surety? Invite God in and watch what he will do. It will be supernatural, just like all of the works of God through the Old and the New Testament. Watch what God will do. But you gotta invite him in. Invite him in and watch what he will do. Let's get back to Hebrews 9. And uh, we've got a few things to talk about before we wrap up here in the next few minutes. When these things were all in place, Hebrews 9, 6, speaking of the tabernacle, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Isn't that interesting? So we all sin in word, thought, or deed daily. But then there are things that we do in ignorance. And isn't it good that the grace of God is sufficient for those things that we've done in ignorance? A thought, a word, an action, God's grace is sufficient to cover all of those things. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration, the writer says, pointing to the present time, then and now, first century and 21st century, for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. So there was a covering, but it was incomplete. Christ has the power to cleanse your sins and your conscience. Our conscience is, as you know, that inner feeling or voice. It's the guide to the rightness or wrongness of our behavior. Our conscience gives us a sense of right or wrong. And so we've got to be careful to guard our conscience because as we think about our conscience, the scripture tells us that we can be in a good place or a bad place. 1 Timothy 4.2, number one, our conscience can be dead or seared. Do we fix this? How oh, we fixed it, good. Used to say conscious, 
Now it says conscience. Here we go. Now we can move forward. Here we go. Hopefully the rest of the points are fixed as well. Our conscience can be dead or seared. 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. So we can have a dead conscience in that we, don't, we no longer feel what we used to feel regarding right and wrong. Maybe it's been seared or killed because we've ignored our conscience one too many times. We've been rebellious against God one too many times. We've allowed that same sin or the same whatever in our lives over and over and over again. We've justified it somehow. We've just seared our conscience so we don't feel any anxiety, any approval. We don't feel anything around areas of our lives. So we need to be careful that our consciences aren't dead or seared. How do we fix it? We simply, we go to the Lord and say, God, my, I feel like my conscience in this area, or maybe just my conscience in general, is seared. I, I, I barely feel uh, anything anymore around my decision-making. I just don't understand right and wrong. And so, Lord, I need you to restore my conscience. It's God's gift to us that we, that we use, that we have, that we operate with so that we can know the difference between right and the wrong, and it works in collaboration with the Holy Spirit and through the word as we understand truth and are filled with the power of God. And so we understand right and wrong, but sometimes we're so seared and dead in our conscience that we don't have the perspective and the capacity. So just ask God to heal your conscience. Ask God to come in and just cleanse you and to set you free in whatever area you need to be set free. Number one, our conscience can be dead or seared. Number two, our conscience can be defiled, right? Titus 1.15 says, Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. If you ever hung around somebody and you tell them a story and they're always coming up with the perverted, the perverted uh, part of the story. They're always trying to take it down a dark path, a dirty path. They're always trying to tell dirty jokes or tell dirty stories or, or they're, they're, everything about their life has got this filter of uncleanliness. They're, they've got a polluted mind, a polluted conscience. It's defiled. And so everything that comes through their filter is broken. We've, we've got to be careful that we hang around people who build us up in our most holy faith. That, that Titus 1.15 in the New King James Version, it's not on the screen, but it says this, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled or corrupted and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience, conscience are defiled. Titus 1.16 says, they, the corrupted and defiled, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So we got, we've got to be careful that we're not allowing our conscience to be defiled through the things that we watch, read, encounters that we have, close friends that we keep. We need to be careful. Bad company corrupts good character. So the people you spend time with, that we spend time with, either help our character or corrupt our character. They either help our conscience or corrupt our conscience. So our conscience can be dead, defiled, and number three, our conscience can be guilty. And this is really what the whole message is all about. 
Hebrews 10, 21 and 22 talks about the conscience. It says, and since we have a a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Listen, Christ has the power to cleanse our sins and to cleanse our conscience. The new system set up by God has the power to set us free from a guilty conscience. (laughs) Do you guys believe in this stuff? (laughs) It is absolutely true. Let's look at the last few verses as we wrap up here. Hebrews 9.10 says, for that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which is not made by human hands. It is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not with the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurities. Just think, verse 14, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. That is why, verse 15, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. Isn't it great to know that Christ has the power to cleanse our sins and to cleanse our conscience? With that, as we invite the worship team up, we're gonna worship some more. I just encourage you to think about areas of your life that need attention, areas of your life where there's confession needed, brokenness needed, contrition needed, and just invite God to work in your heart to cleanse your sin and to cleanse your conscience. If you're here and you don't know anything about Christ, but you know that you've made mistakes, the Bible calls those mistakes sin and outlines it in the Old and the New Testament. If you're here today and you want to be forgiven for your sins, Jesus will forgive your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So you simply, let's close our eyes in prayer as we stand up. We simply say, Lord, forgive my sins. Go ahead and stand up. Lord, forgive my sins. I need your grace. I need your love. I don't understand who you are and what you're all about, but I know that I need grace from you, the great high priest. So forgive me for my sin. Fill me with your spirit and show me your love. And as you pray those things, what will happen is the Holy Spirit will come into your life. Your sins will be forgiven and then you get adopted into God's family. (laughs) You become a son or a daughter within the family of God. And you've just begun a a new walk with God. The Bible calls it being born again. So you've got a new life and you're now gonna follow Jesus. That's the goal. That's the plan that we recognize our need for him. We give ourselves to him. We follow him all the days of our lives. 
So Lord, as we do our best to follow you all the days of our lives, be glorified. Lord, as we sing, help us to worship in spirit and in truth with great honesty and humility we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship. Amen. So we're actually, uh, we're going to do a new song as we, uh, we close up. And uh, kind of how Pastor Steve was talking about that and just the, the confidence that we have in that new covenant is the confidence that we also have that, you know, we have a eternity to spend with our Lord and our Savior. And, and this one, this song is called Hymn of Heaven and it, it speaks to that. It speaks to, you know, just declaring our excitement about uh, being with the Lord and, and just being surrounded by His glory. So, um, yeah, let's sing, let's sing this one together, guys. How I long to breathe the air of heaven. Pain is gone, and mercy fills the streets. To look upon the one who bled to save me. Walk with him for all eternity. There will be a day when all bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with he who died and rose
guys, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that um, that is our, our declaration this morning, Father. Lord, we long to sing that with you, Father. We long to be in your presence and, and worship alongside you, Lord Jesus, to spend eternity by your side. But Lord, whilst we're here on earth, Father, Lord, we just pray for your, uh, your protection, Lord. We pray for your goodness just to be alongside of us, Lord. This week as we leave this, this place, Lord, that you would just come alongside each and every one of us, Father. Lord, give us confidence to, to be bold in your presence, to be bold in your name, Jesus. Lord, we thank you and um, Lord, we worship you, Father. May we never forget that, especially as we walk through our day-to-day lives, Father. May we just cling to the hope that we have in you, Jesus. We love you, Father. We, we lift up your name, we praise and we worship you. We pray these things in your precious name, Father. Amen.